Hello and welcome to this episode of the LSU Professional Sales Institute podcast. My name is Greg Accardo and I am your host. First of all, thank our corporate partners who make all of our work here possible. They are United Rentals, BXS Insurance, the insurance professionals for your team, CMA Technology Solutions, Orso Financial, Gartner, the world's leading research and advisory firm, and Paycom. And our guest today is going to be Dr. Howard Dover with the Sales Center at University of Texas at Dallas. Uh, Dr. Dover has uh, been a mentor of mine for quite a while. He's uh, helped me in my new career here since I started in 2015. I've uh, relied on him for a lot of uh, great insights, especially in the world of sales technology. And he's got some really great observations about the current COVID-19 situation and how it's affecting the world of sales and kind of what this is going to mean for all of us uh, when we do come out of it. So uh, enjoy this recording from Dr. Howard Dover with the LSU Professional Sales Institute podcast. So Howard, thank you for joining us today. So how are you and your family doing in this, uh, in this current pandemic? We're doing good. Um, luckily, we, we live out a little bit outside of Dallas, and uh, we have a, a beautiful linear park right across the street. And uh, so, you know, we can go out and do walks uh, and bike rides, and, and uh, everybody's at home. It's kind of fun to have lunch with my high schooler, you know? <laughs> that <laughs> so. sounds great. It's kind of, like, kind of like Rob Peterson's video he put on LinkedIn yesterday. That was pretty entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, so, so Howard, how about uh, just tell everyone a little bit about yourself and uh, talk about your, your, your career and how that led you into this world of uh, university sales education and research? Well, um, I, I, I got my PhD a few years ago at, at UT Dallas. And uh, before that, I was actually working in uh, in government at the state of Oregon, and I was a systems analyst designing full life cycle, uh, you know, automation projects for the state of Oregon in the Department of Human Services, and I was really good at it. I, you know, I, I could see whole data systems in my head, and and uh, I I started waking up with cold sweats at night with code flying through my head, and. Uh, and I realized, I was like, wow, man, I'm not happy. I mean, this is, I'm good at this, but I'm not happy. Um, and so I, I, I kind of uh, thought about it a little bit. And, and um, I had had a sales business before that, right out of college, where I ran my own sales company. And uh, we were a, a kind of, you know, third party or channel partner for newspapers in, in the, the Mountain West region of the country. And did a lot of their sales for them, and it was you know I did really really well with that, and, uh, and then I got bored and and lost the company. But uh, funny when you're young and you don't understand what a cash cow is. I now understand a cash cow, and wish I could go back to my my 30 year old self and say, hey stupid, that's a cash cow. Don't mm -hmm. get bored. Don't get bored milking a cow. Um, but Anyway, I was, I was designing computer systems and, and really understanding how data comes together and business processes come together. And, and, uh, and it just kind of came to me that I probably needed to shift back into business. And so I, 
I applied to the, a lot of universities around the country and, and the University of Texas at Dallas is where I chose to get my PhD. And if you don't know much about University of Texas at Dallas, it's one of two pure quant schools in the country. Uh, and we, we only teach quantitative methodology in our PhD program. Washington University is the other pure quant school, which means we have no behavioralists. We don't really teach managerial. We don't really teach psychology. We teach math. Mm -hmm. we, we teach math, statistics, and econometrics. Um, and so uh, that, that was an interesting choice because I'm good at math. And then I met people who are really good at math when I got into the program. And so I took my first job in uh, coming out. I went to Salisbury University on the East Coast for my first job. And the first year was amazing. And I was going to be um, a, a modeling researcher. I was going to do research. I was, you know, the teaching gig was great. You know, I did my nine hours in the classroom and I got to study and create knowledge the rest of the time. And life was good. And then that great recession hit. And before the Great Recession, I had D students getting $60,000 a year jobs working for government contractors in Washington, D.C. So I was like, hey, this is a great deal. I show up. If they show up, it's kind of a good deal, right? Doesn't really matter what we teach. Everybody hires what we do. And, uh, and then when the Great Recession hit, my A students, my top tier students couldn't even get interviews. and I, Greg, I, that, that really bugged me. It just bugged me as a person. I, I, I went to some of my colleagues who had been there for years, and I said, hey, what networks do you have? Because I, we have really great students, and I feel bad. I've taught them what I said is relevant, and they can't even get interviews. And they said, well, we don't really have networks either. Or, you know, you want to you get a have them go down and work for one of the local, uh, you know, espresso shops. We can, you know, we can get you. I said, are you kidding me? They, they got a college degree and we're going to send them to espresso shops. So to be honest with you, I had kind of a moment very early in being a professor where I really questioned the whole business model. Yeah. And, and it really bugged me a lot. And, I loved what I learned as a modeler and, and it still shapes my, my economic thinking. But I, I, I just really said, wait a minute, I, I got I to gotta be better at this. And so I started going up to Washington, D.C. and talking to the companies and saying, hey, what do you need me to teach people? I mean, how do I get my kids a, an interview with you? And they told me the kind of stuff I should be teaching. And I went, wait a minute, we're not teaching any of that. That isn't in my textbooks. I'm not in, um, and then I tripped up on, um, at, back then, the, uh, the program at RBI was looking for somebody, and, and that was back when Peterson was at RBI and Rodriguez uh, was at RBI. I think he had left, and the position I was applying for was Rodriguez's old position. And um, so, so I went up there, and, and I discovered this whole sales space. And I wasn't teaching sales by role play. I was teaching sales like all other marketing classes up to then. It's kind of embarrassing now. Uh, I was teaching them with, you know, hey, three exams, one project, and that was sales. No role plays. 
And, and then I, I witnessed this whole thing going on in sales education. And, and then I came back from the RBI uh, experience and they let me go up and, and watch behind the scenes for their national sales challenge. And then I called up Terry Lowe at, at, at uh, Kennesaw and I said, hey, I heard you, you hold the big dance. I said, I want to come watch. He said, why come watch? Bring two kids, they'll get jobs. I said, nobody gets jobs. I said, bring two kids, they'll get jobs. And I think that was 2008 that I went to my first NCSE. And sure enough, I took two kids. Um, and I called Terry several times. I said, I don't want my kids to be bad. And he said, just role play with them in your office like two or three times. As many times as they'll come to your office, just do that. Look at the rubric look at the videos of the nationals. And, and he said, believe me, they'll just do better than half of the people that show up. And back then it wasn't that competitive like it is now. And, and sure enough, my kids did fine. I mean, they didn't win, but they, they, they didn't do horribly and they, they all got jobs. And, um, and I said, wait a minute, this is, this is legit. I mean, this is, here's this group of people that, and I'm not teaching the way these people are teaching. And the beautiful thing I think about the sales community, Greg, is, um, and you and I have experienced this because I've, I've, I've kind of worked with you over the last few years. Um, you know, guys like Terry Lowe took me under his wing. Guys like Rob Peterson took me under their wing. Guys like Mike Rodriguez, and, and who was winning a lot of competitions back then, and, and, um, and the guys up in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, were winning a lot of competitions. And they all just said, hey, we want you to be good at this. So this is how you prepare your kids. This is how you teach. And, and so I just started learning how to teach better. And uh, so that was my start. Well, that's a long answer to a question. But. Yeah. So uh, tell us a little bit about the, uh, the UT Dallas Center for Professional Sales and, and how did that get started? Well, it, when I was at Salisbury University, um, we, we started doing okay. Um, you know, the first couple of years, we got our, our, our tail handed to us. But as I sat down with, like I said, Mike Rodriguez, and after Mike would win, I'd say, hey, Mike, I don't want to lose. You don't have to give me your secret sauce, but can you at least, you know, help me figure out how to do this better? And, uh, and, and a lot of other people, um, like Jerry, uh, Jerry, who was up at Eau Claire then, now and is over at, um, at, at uh, Arizona now. And, and so at Salisbury, I started, a, my, my kids started getting nationally recognized. So we, we had a, a stint there where I think we did a couple of competitions where students made it into the semifinals and the quarterfinals and, and even some, some top five finishes uh, at Salisbury. And so UT Dallas called me up and said, hey, um, you're from us, and by the way, you know, you're doing the sales thing. I said, yeah, and they said, did you know that 82% of our students in marketing are getting sales jobs? And I said, uh-huh, yeah, that's a national statistic. And they said, uh, you know, we, we, we really don't have anybody teaching sales here. Um, I said, well, you, you need to recruit somebody. And I knew they were quant. So I, I, I knew when they went out to the market, they were going to go try to find a quant person that teaches sales. And, and I, know, I knew they were going to have a hard time, but I didn't want to tell them that. And, and so they, of course, came back to me and said, hey, that, we, we went out to the national market. We didn't get anybody. 
And finally, they called me back up. And this was about an 18-month time frame. They finally called me back up and said, well, we figured out what we're going to do. And I said, okay, what's that? And they said, we're going to bring you home. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> what does that mean? So, well, you, you, we trained you, so you know us, and we know you, and you're doing a good thing. So can you come back and form a center? Um, can you come back and teach sales? And when I talked to the dean negotiating, you know, my package, I said, well, do you, do you, want, do you want to be a, a sales program? And he said, um, tell me what that means. And I said, well, this is what it means. And he said, well, I want, a pro, I, I, I want a program. I said, well, if you want a program, we have to have a sales lab. He said, okay, well, what does that mean? I told him, he said, okay, well, we're going to have a lab. He said, what else do you need? I said, well, that's, that's good for right now. I think you give me a lab and you give me the, the, the center, and I think we're going to be okay. And so I arrived knowing that I had a dean that was going to support the building of a sales program at a top-tier research institution. And he, for the last seven, eight years, has said, what do you need? And, and, uh, and he's, he's provided that funding and support. We're now up to three full-time faculty. Um, and, you know, we, we have great partnerships. We do a leadership summit two times a year. Um, and we, we do okay on those competitions. Uh, sometimes we lose to places like, you know, Louisiana State University. Um, Not that often. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's fun when our friends beat us. And, uh, and it's a good collegial group of people. And um, we appreciate the opportunity to, to, to now be one of those programs that, that, that we really modeled after the great programs like Florida State and um, NIU and, and, um, and you know, RBI and Baylor and Houston. And what's amazing is, is all those programs um, weren't threatened by us. They helped us understand what they did, and then we, we figured out from our own community what did the Dallas community need us to be um, to, to, to serve one of the largest metropolitan areas in the country. That's true. But, but you guys have done a great job over there. I should be congratulated. Thank um, you. I want to ask you, Howard, so you, you've kind of cemented yourself as a thought leader in, sales tech, in the sales technology space for a little while now. Um, it, at least as long as I've known you. Um, I'd like to piggyback off of that and have you talk about some of the changes and disruptions you anticipate in the near future, especially in light of this current pandemic. Well, I think it's, it's interesting. I'm, I am working on a book right now regarding um, the concept of the, the sales innovation paradox, which is that we have invested billions and billions of dollars in training. We've invested billions and billions of dollars in technology, and we've increased and reorganized the way in which we, we allocate our salespeople. We now have a lot more sales development reps than we have, than, than, and we've taken that headcount away from the actual sales reps. In fact, according to some statistics, we're up as, as high as 1,000% increase in the number of sales development representative titles in the last six or seven years. And yet our performance numbers are still going down. And, and yet we also, almost, you know, 70, 60, 70% of organizations now have 
sales enablement departments or functions that are trying to get better at selling. And yet amidst all of that, we're still struggling to perform with efficiency and effectiveness. And, and so I think one of the big things that's going to come in the economy is I don't think that's going to be acceptable anymore. So one of the things I've been looking at for the last three or four years is I, I, I'm really a huge proponent of using technology to automate and augment the sales motions that, you know, let's automate the motion that doesn't need to be done by a human. Let's augment the experience that the human has with the human-to-human -human interaction with technology. And this technology has been existing now for easily half a decade and, and really exploded about four to five years ago. And so companies have really overinvested in everything instead of strategically investing in a strategic way. So we did more training, we did more technology, we did more support with enablement and, and, and ops. And then we also increased the number of headcount at the same time. So do, and you, do you think there has been a, been a thinking in the industry that uh, more money spent equaled in better outcomes? Well, I think we got away with it. So I think what happened is when we were in, when we were in an up economy, um, I used to tell my students to uh, investigate the, the DMT Fast 500. So these companies that are, that are growing by exponential rates, hundreds, thousands of percent. And, and if you ever want to learn what works, you know, go, go, go look at those companies. But when you're in the exponential phase or when you're in a growth phase, if you're doing stupid stuff, you, you often don't get caught. So, you know, if, if hiring more people really wasn't the right strategy, but sales go up, you look like a genius. If, if uh, you know, if adding five components to your sales tech stack wasn't the right idea, but sales go up, you look like a genius. So a lot of things, because the economy has been growing, um, we've been able to get away with doing stuff that probably wasn't efficient or effective, but hey, sales went up, so we weren't going to care. Um, now, there's a few companies that have worried about this well before the economy went down, and what they've actually done is they've actually had exponential increases in their performance, but they've actually reduced their headcount. And so to me, that's what we should be seeing everywhere, but yet what we're seeing instead is this overinvestment in everything. And yeah, I think, I think it's, going to be, it's going to be really interesting to see play out. I was waiting for a tipping point, and I didn't think it was going to be dramatic, but now I'm pretty sure it's going to be dramatic because now the, the COVID experience and the economic collapse that, or, or economic realignment, whether it's a collapse or realignment, we don't know. It's definitely going to be a realignment of the economy and resources coming out of the, of the COVID stop of work. And so people are going to be more strategic. And now all of a sudden, if you did, if you did stupid before, you're not going to be allowed to do stupid again. If you were spending money and you couldn't defend the spend, I think that's gone. I think you've got to defend the spend. And I was on a, I was on a call or a webinar a couple of weeks ago. And 
it was described to me that training and support structures in private equity owned companies in the one one group of private equity owned companies that that we were referring to went to zero it just went to zero it, it may have been millions of dollars for it went to zero a couple of weeks ago now if you want more money in that bucket you got to show me why it's going to give me a return on investment but currently you get zero dollars until you show me you're going to make me money you know there's always this this uh situation where if some department wanted to invest in in a sales activity or training or, or anything technology wise it usually would have to pass that through the cfo department to get some approval from the people who actually do the books uh, i think we probably and, and you correct me if i'm wrong but i think this this post pandemic environment we're going to be in is going to be like a post 911 where there's going to be some strict accounting responsibilities and the roi is going to have to be plain well i i, I think there there's been some discussion prior to the downturn that the efficacy of effort in sales is not producing an, a significant roi and and that was known a lot of ceos knew it a lot of cfos knew it but it but it's not like you're going to go over there and say, "Hey, salespeople, you're done," because you didn't you didn't want to you didn't know what you didn't know what you didn't know what to shut down over there. Now, I mean, if if that was the view beforehand, you can imagine what it looks like now. And and I think you know there's a there's a book I read after the last um, downturn called Manias, Shocks, and Panics. And one of the things that I'm fairly convinced of, before you can get a shock, you have to have, you have, to have an overprescription of something for a shock to occur. I'm sorry, for the, for the panic to occur. So we were overprescribed in spending on training. We were overprescribed on spending in technology. We were overprescribed in spending on support. We were overprescribed on spending for sales headcount. Before before we hit the shock. So we are perfectly positioned for a panic, just like any other stock, stock market. In, in our field specifically, was sitting in a mania phase. When you realize that we've had a thousand percent increase in the SDR function in the last few years, and yet at the same time, Greg, We've had the, the automation and augmentation of that same role allow one SDR to do between 10 and 100 times the amount of work of an SDR two years ago, three years ago. And yet we hired a thousand more of them, a thousand times more, you know, thousand percent more. So we just increased our capacity to message the market at between a multiple of a hundred to 1,000 times our capacity from five years ago. Have we increased that many buyers in the B2B market space? Yeah, those are pretty stunning numbers. So we were, we were in a mania. So you know, before a crash, if you're in a mania, you've actually inflated the amount of things you're doing and you got away with it, right? Because it's a mania. Mm -hmm. 
everybody gets in because everybody else is getting in. It must be the right thing to do. So everybody invests. So now the question is, obviously, we've this, the COVID-19 was the shock. And so manias get popped by a shock. So that was our shock. Now the panic is ensuing. So now we're going to get, so we're, we're in the early stages of the, of, of the post-mania, post-shock. Now we're in the panic stage as a field. So then the question becomes, you end up coming out of these rebuilt, right? So that's the thing is, is this is going to look very, very different as we move forward. And what is it going to look like? And um, we had John Barrows um, join us for our sales leadership summit last week. And I think one of the things that he and I were talking about, I don't know if it was during that session or before in our pre-call, we both agreed that, that average is in, in trouble. If you were an average sales rep where you just kind of went into your sales engagement platform, you pressed the buttons, you did your automatic campaigns, you did your dials, you did your, you know, you were kind of a robot, you just did what the automated processes were allowing you to do, uh, you're in trouble. Because that can all be done by marketing, and it should be done by marketing. Mm -hmm. And so, so, you know, I, I think we're just going to be in a very fascinating world where um, if you understand this, and you understand that there are certain technologies that just make you better at this, those technologies are going to win. The people who understand how to be relevant in messaging and potent in their meetings, and they're trained about how to do that meeting in a way that they truly understand people, I think those people are going to be gold. I think the people who understand technologies, I think the people who understand people and business processes, and they choose to be better than average, they're going to be gold. They're going to be worth a phenomenal amount of money. They're going to be worth investing in. And I think the field is going to have a realignment. And uh, I think it's going to be positive for those of us who are on the right wave. And I, I think at UTD, we've tried to look at this trend line and say, listen, in the future, the salesperson of the future has to be really good at harnessing the technology and being relevant. So what is all this going to mean for us as sales educators? Um, I think we need to reduce our reliance on the role play. Um, I think the role play is important. Um, but, I, you know, I was, I was just having a, a, a call with one of my students who is the top producer of his company in all of North America in his first year. And he made the comment. I didn't make the comment. He said, he said I'm sitting here working with kids from other programs around the country. And he said, it is, it, he said, I'm so glad. He said, 90% of their education was role play centric. He said, my education wasn't role play centric. It was there. He said, but you made me prospect. He said, I had to learn how to do digital prospecting. I had to learn how to do follow up calls. I had to learn how to do all the other sales motions. He said, that's, he said it's given me a massive competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. So I think we've, we've all kind of rolled to the role play. And um, that's because it, it's not a bad exercise. And it's an essential exercise 
a salesperson knows how to needs to know how to understand a meeting and get somebody from the beginning to the end. But the biggest challenge, and, and this was brought to me by my advisory board almost five and a half years ago, six years ago, this guy right in the middle of my big event, my rookie preview, and I have hundreds of kids on campus. I have hundreds of people on campus. And one of my advisory board guys catches me in the hallway. He's with a Fortune 50 company globally. He says, Howard, I want to talk to you. And I'm like, okay. Yeah, he's an executive. He's in the building. I'm like, yes, okay. You're, you're in the building. You want to talk to me. You're on my board. I'm going to talk to you. I got a lot of stuff going on. And he said, you know, he said, you guys do a really good job. And he's Texan. So, you know, you got to watch out. When a Texan gives you a compliment, something's coming next. And so he, he's like, you know, you did a really good job here. So, but did you know 90% of my sales staff's work is getting the appointment, not being in the appointment? What are you doing for me around that? And I said, well, you know what? Kyle, let me tell you something. I said, that's been bugging me ever since I went to Dreamforce about a year and a half ago. And we're looking at using technology that would help our students understand how do, you, how do you accelerate the capacity to get the meeting? How do you understand the data, the information in a CRM system? How do you, how do you get context on a customer before you ever meet with them? I said, these are the things we're looking at. We don't have an answer for it yet, but I'm working on it. And he looked at me and he said, this was, now, this was the real compliment, Greg. He says, Howard, I like you. <laughs> and I said, I like you too, Kyle. And he said, I've talked to every program I fund in this country. And he said, you're the first guy that listened to me. Now, that may not be very popular with a lot of our friends, and that may not even be accurate, by the way. So, do, so those that was his are, perception. Yeah, those are top of the funnel activities. And... Uh, so do you, do you see a realignment there? Well, I think the challenge with, with, uh, with the top of the funnel activities is that they're always changing. And, that, and, and so in fairness to the academic space, um, it is really, really tough to teach top of funnel sales motions because what works at the top of the funnel is shifting about every six to 18 months. So we can't get that into a textbook. Um, it's a little tough to understand, you know, what, is the, what, what are the activities, the role play pieces that you can put into a curriculum in a steady space so that you can teach them with some continuity. So that, that's one of the reasons we don't see it and it isn't easy to scale across the whole country in the academic space because it, even in industry, it's a challenge to deploy what's working currently. I mean, if you, if you want to see evidence of that, just open your email box and see that industry doesn't know how to stay atop this strategy. By the time you roll out a strategy these days, it's, it's obsolete. And as long as, you know, once you develop the organizational strategies to roll out something, it doesn't always work anymore. And so that's the world of prospecting. It's ever changing. And so I, I think programs like yours, programs like ours, like Houston, um, 
TCU is, is just stood up uh, here in, in Fort Worth. And, and doing live selling where your students are actually out there prospecting in any way, shape, or form um, allows them to get a taste for the fact that selling is going to be about contacting a stranger you've never met and being able to have a conversation. And, and then earning the right to have a meeting of substance, which would then be what we were preparing with the role play, right? Yeah, and, and you know, one of the things that I noticed, and you know, I noticed this a while back, I mean, there's no one size fits all when it comes to sales education at the university level. I mean, if you take accounting, finance, management, marketing, those are pretty much, if you go to any university in the country, you're going to see a lot of the same material being taught at the same class level, same grade level. Uh, very little differentiation at all. Maybe a little bit here and there, depending on who wrote the book. But when it comes to sales, it's it's kind of like you, you you know you and I have you know approaches that are pretty similar. Other schools are, are not doing a lot of the you know the you know the techie stuff like we're doing, like using artificial intelligence and video and other things. So it. It's a little sporadic, but don't you think? Well, I think part of it is um, there, there's there's a reasonable debate to be had amongst academics, and I think it's a fair debate. Is that our function? And and I think that's a fair question to ask, because is is the concepts of um, technology and technology deployment inside of a sales program um, a theory based concept? And, and I think the answer to that is probably no. It, it's, it's probably leaning a little into um, uh, you know, tying very tightly into where industry is. So then the question becomes, is, is our role to teach um, theoretical components and, and a way of thinking? And I think the answer to that is yes. I think, I think we do have a responsibility to help students learn to think critically and analytically. And that's a skill that many of the, the corporations say, the number one skill I need you to give them is, is the ability to think analytically, critically, and make a decision. So that, that's, that's definitely there and important. Um, the question is, can you, and, and as you pointed out, not every academic program in the country can do, um, do the same things. We, we get to do what we do at UT Dallas because we have a dean that says, I'll, I'll, I'll take care of, you know, I'll, I'll fund you. And we also have a student body that are pretty um, intellectually aggressive. We, we don't have a football program at UT Dallas. We, we have 30,000 students approximately, and we don't have a football program. Um, we're a Division III uh, athletic program, but we don't have football. Now, we do have a chess program that is globally and nationally <laughs> dominant. And, and I, I always bring that up because people laugh, but we actually have pep rallies for the chess team when they go to the final four. And kids show up to cheer the chess team getting on the bus to go to the final four. So we're kind of geeky. Mm -hmm. So when you realize that UT Dallas is a bunch of really smart, kind of intense kids, and then you throw a tech stack at them. You know what? They don't complain, Greg. My kids don't say, gee, why did, you, why did you expose me to IBM Watson? Why did you make me do sales tra tra trailhead from Salesforce in my intro class? 
why did you force me to use Navigator and have an SSI score? They don't ever, they don't ever, they don't ever go, God, what are you doing to us? They're like, okay, is there more? Okay, is there yeah. more? And so, you know, I think each academic institution has to do what they think they can do. Um, I don't know that, that everything that everybody's doing is replicatable. Um, you know, I don't have the uniqueness of the LSU campus, which is a beautiful campus. And, you know, it's, it's, it's got a storied history. And, you know, it's just, it, it was, you know, I, I loved coming on campus. It was a very fun experience for me as an academic to see that, that beauty of a college town and the feel of that campus, you know, you get to do things I can never do because your students are living at LSU. I'm in the middle of a metropolitan city. Mm -hmm. My kids, I am not the center of their lives. If I try to hold some kind of an event, I got to make it part of the class or they don't show up because they maybe live 20 minutes away from my campus. And with traffic, it could be an hour from my campus. And you know what? I'm only the center of their lives when I'm on their calendar. They don't live on my campus. So it, it, different universities are going to have different models, and that's because we're, we're all in different settings. We all have different cultures, and um, we all, all have different environments. So, so, so for sales graduates, you know, I wanted to ask you this. Uh, you know, with you know, all the sales activity today that's occurring, it's going virtually, okay? It's, Nobody's meeting in person today. Uh, they probably won't be meeting in person for a while. Uh, what do you think that's going to do to the hiring landscape for future sales grants? Well, I think the immediate challenge for most companies, and I, I'm sure that a lot of us are experiencing this right now, is each company is having to assess, can I do a work-at-home internship? and and different companies are struggling with either yes, I can and make that a meaningful experience, or no, I can't, so I have to eliminate my internship program. So if, if the design of the internship program was all around community being in its place and having this great you know, feel of culture around a physical space, those companies, are, are, rightfully so, are saying uh, we don't we don't know how to transfer that online, and it's expensive because if I if all I'm having people do is, is is sit at home, but they don't really know what to do, and I can't allocate the resources, that's a pretty expensive redesign um, because you're really trying to on you're trying to redesign your onboarding, and not only your onboarding, but your pre-onboarding with interning into a digital and virtual experience. And in all honesty, I think a lot of companies, if they look through the triage of what's important and, and what's not, I think a lot of companies are going to make the call that, hey, I don't have the resources to invest in that transformation right now, so I'm probably going to go ahead and put a hold on that. Now, some of the better funded programs around the country, uh, we have a lot of tech partners. And at the moment, at this date, it may change, but at this date, most of our internships with tech providers are holding because they realized that most of the work they were doing was virtual anyway. They were doing virtual meetings and it's better to go ahead and, and get the interns immediately. Understanding that, hey, when you come sell for us, 
you're probably going to do Zoom meetings most of the time. It's rarely going to be face-to-face. You are going to work from home. If you work with IBM, a lot of times you're, you're located not out of a facility. You're located from home. It depends on what, what team you join. And so um, I think that's the first real impact is internships are tough. The second impact is I think this question of volume. I think we, we've had an increase in the number of salespeople, but there's some research I was doing um, prior to the COVID outbreak that showed that we actually had a, a 10 out of the 20 major metropolitan markets in the United States, 10 of those markets experienced a decrease in sales headcount over the last two and a half years based off LinkedIn's data in the economic graph. Um, 10 of those uh, had some increases, but overall in the United States, we only had a 5% increase in, in the number of sales roles. Let me put that in context for a second. LinkedIn actually had a 16% increase in the number of users over the same period of time. So we actually lost roles because when you think about that, we should have had at least 16% if we stayed with the same growth as we did with LinkedIn users. So we've actually had a decrease in headcount across the country in, in salespeople. Now, they, they classified BDRs differently. So in the same period of time, we've had a 78% increase in the BDR role. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? It means that our salespeople are probably going to be prospectors in BDR roles because that's the only growth area. The actual field sales is actually on decline. Forrester put out a report in 2015. It was really quite provocative and said by the year 2020, there would be a 20% decrease in the number of salespeople in America. I use that in my keynote several times, and I said I thought they were wrong. I thought they were undercounting because they only talked about automation. They didn't talk about augmentation. Well, now we move forward to 2020. I can't get the data point at 2015 without the help from LinkedIn to give me that data. But over the two and a half year period, we've actually had the equivalent of about a 14 to 15% decrease in the number of field salespeople on LinkedIn um, when you look at real numbers over the last two and a half years. So actually, we've had a shrinking of the number of salespeople, but we've had an increase in the number of development representatives who are only responsible for setting meetings and doing S&B work. So... I don't know that we're well equipped. I don't know that we're preparing our students to be on the phone and do prospecting for the first two to three years of their lives with our current curriculum. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one of the things I've been telling my students, in fact, we had this conversation this morning that, that I felt that it, when it came to recruiters that they may be meeting with in the next few months, Virtual selling skills is probably moving to the top of the board in questions. Uh, those skills are going to become paramount. Yeah, I think, I think they've always been there. So I think the question is, how do I so, – so one, one way I can exhibit that, Greg, is that when, when I do the interview, um, 
but an interview is a crass is a crass method of evaluation. Um, and so I think the things when when you actually have your students have to do some kind of um, using digital assets, using visual tools, even even if we're doing a visual, you know, a, a digital or video style um, contests, promotions, um, exercises, and you know, the, the kind of the gold standard would be, of course, to actually have your students do real outreach. Um, a lot of a lot of programs pick that up by doing internships, but some of us, like your program and our program, we actually do it by actually having classes with objectives and quotas. Um, and that allows them to walk into that interview. You know, live selling right now in COVID for my advanced students is brutal. I mean, they're calling in, trying to talk to people, and, you know, it's, it's just it's, it's brutal. It's really brutal right now. And I, and I walked in to my class right before spring break, and I said, listen, this is going to get ugly. And I said, um, I, I, we could do one of two things. One of them is we could roll over and say, well, gee, too bad, so sad. We, gee, we tried this, so let's go ahead and modify and let's go back to role play. And, and, you know, and we could salvage your, your GPA and not worry about it and, and, and you know, say, let's, let's save this for another time. I said, but some of you are going to go into internships this summer and some of you are going to graduate and you're going to be selling into this environment in May or June. I said, how many of you would like to have a little experience before that happens on what you should and shouldn't do before it actually matters to your paycheck? And they all looked at me and went, oh, you are right. I think I want to be in sales, but I'm going to have to dial into this. And if you mess up as a student, you know what you get to say? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just a student. I'm just trying to learn. <laughs> But you know, when you when you mess up in your Fortune 500, you don't get. To, I, I don't. I don't know what you get. I don't know what you get to say. That's true. When you get to say a student, I I can do a really dumb thing, and somebody call. Occasionally, we get a call from somebody, and they they say, "Hey, your student did this, and that was really you know unprofessional." And we thank them. We say, "Thank you, thank you for letting us know." We'll we'll sit down with that student, and we'll have a coaching session with them. Um. But isn't it better for them to have figured that out while they were in school versus when they work for your company? Well, that's what I tell a lot of people is that, you know, I want my students to make mistakes when they're with me because then I can coach them through the mistakes and they probably will never make them again versus making those mistakes when they enter the business world. Well, and the other thing is, Greg, that I, I think that you and I would, would, would when, when you do this kind of work, you start realizing that if you're out in the field and you have to do the same motion a hundred times a day, or you have to do the same you know, meeting 10 times a day or the same. So you don't really get to stop and say, Hey, should I have done that differently? You, you don't get time. You don't get time to stop and say, gee, should I have done that differently? Um, now, you know, some companies allow you that time, but you know, for the most part, you're on a number and you got to get something done. So I always tell my students one of the advantages of doing it when you're in college is so you do something, we, you know, we do it in iterative cycles. So we have like six, five to six cycles per class. 
and they're iterative. They're two-week phases, and we know they're going to make mistakes. We know they're going to do it wrong. We, you know, 10% of them will do it the way we ask them to. 80% will do it the easy way, right? Mm -hmm. And so the easy way is bad, and, and you get some weird results. So the student comes back, says, hey, that didn't work. And I say, oh, really? Well, the 10% over here actually had some success. Now let's, now let's think about this. Now let's go and iterate again. Let's do it again. Two more weeks, another iterative cycle. Come back. Now 30% is thinking a little bit smarter. 70% still trying to do it easy. You know, if you have a great class, by the end of the class, you're at 10% still doing it easy. Maybe 20% still trying to say, hey, let me cheat this. <laughs> you got 80% of your class going, I figured it out. I got I to gotta do this the right way. But you know what? The amazing thing is when you're a student is you don't have to do 100 of those motions a day. You have to maybe do 30 of those motions in a week. And then you get to stop, evaluate, get feedback, iterate. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think we're able to maybe accelerate the learning um, and, and, it, and it proves itself out when they get the field. I, I just had two interviews this morning with alumni who are between three years and one year out in the field. And my two interviews today, one of them was 500% and 700% on our number. The other student was 150% to 300%, depending on what number you were looking at, of their performance numbers. In both of their cases, number one in their teams. In one of the cases, number one in North America. And yeah. I kind of asked them, and I said, you know, I, I know this isn't us. It's really you. But help me understand, is there anything we did that helped you? And the guy, the guy who was number one in, in North America told me, he said, here's the deal. He said, every piece of technology we use here, I used at UTD. So I already knew how to use the technology on day one. He said, I started using it my junior year. So now I graduate. It's like, it's like the back of my hand. I know how to use every piece of technology in the sales stack in my company. Second thing is, he said, I actually did the motions and learned that you got to be iterative. You got to figure out what works, change, figure out what works, change, figure out, you know, keep, keep iterating and getting better, keep iterating and getting better. And he said, I just, that just got ingrained in me in my program, and that's just who I am now. I iterate and succeed. When I don't succeed, I iterate. I don't continue to fail doing the same wrong thing. When I, whatever's working, I try to replicate. Whatever's not, I try to iterate. Yeah, that's a good point. Wouldn't you like to, wouldn't you like to be coaching that guy if you were, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're in sales and that's your, that's, that's your team. You get that's a bunch true. of them. You get a bunch of these guys who say, so boss, I was trying this and it worked. I was trying this. didn't work. Do you have any ideas on how I can get better? That's a good point. It's like so a what? dream. It's like a dream employee, right? Our, our last question, I guess, I, I kind of want to touch on coaching and sales management a little bit. So uh, I want to get your opinion on this, and it's something I've been curious about since the COVID-19 uh, situation hit. And, you know, being in Dallas, I mean, you and I both have seen, you know, the, you know, the massive, you know, office floors with, with inside sales reps working in cubicles. 
And when you look at today, we have our social distancing. And when we come out of this pandemic, there's going to be some ground rules and best practices and how many people can be in an office. Uh, do you see a lot of those roles being dispersed to go, number one, virtually? And if that is going to happen, what are, what are going to be the challenges for the coaching and sales management models that depended on being there, putting your hand on the shoulder of that inside sales rep, coaching them through the mistakes, where now that's out the window and now these people are working somewhere else and you still have to manage them and coach them? So I think the answer to that is um, I, I've put out uh, a, a week or two ago, I, I was putting out feelers to some of my CEO friends who are in the tech stack space and, and trying to get a feel for, you know, who's happy, who's not, um, who's busy, who's not, what's going on, what are they hearing, what are they seeing. Here's the interesting thing. Um, so we've had conversation intelligence. Not only is there a gong, is there, you know, there, there's gong, there's, there's chorus, there's refract. Um, but even Salesforce at um, Dreamforce actually said they're going to put call coaching into the, um, in, into Salesforce into the future here. That's their big upgrade. There's companies like ExecVision that, that allow you to listen in on phone calls and do voice to text and then use AI tools to kind of flesh out the stuff. So this was already available before COVID. Um, the, the CEO of, or the president and founder of, um, of Chorus was telling me, he said, our phones are ringing off the hook because, you know, now I can't hear anybody. So, you know, if I'm a sales manager and I just put everybody in their homes, I used to be able to, I used to be able to be on the floor and I could walk from, from cubicle to cubicle and I could see what was going on. Now I can't do any of that. Well, then all of a sudden, conversation intelligence moved from a nice to have to essential. You, you, you got to have visibility in on the phone calls. So, so some of these things are exploding. The other thing is, um, you know, you, you and I both know Rob Jepson. Mm -hmm. So I asked Rob, I said, hey, how's, how are things going? He said, I have never been busier. He said, this is crazy. He said, our phones are ringing off the hook. Because once again, it's, it, his is a technology platform that allows you to set goals and then measure performance and activities against those goals. And all of a sudden, um, coaching has to move into digital space. It can't be, I'm over your shoulder. It has to be, hey, um, I actually, you and I sat down, we, we created a plan, and the CRM system is going to track whether you actually accomplished your objectives. And, and all of a sudden, digital tools like an exploit is allowing coaching to become real. And, and, and so actually I think what I'm hearing and, and what I'm sensing is that actually the tools that have always been there have moved from, once again, you know, gee, that would be a novel idea to maybe essential. And so actually I think coaching may actually get better because higher visibility, people literally, um, you know, you, you can't just say, hey, let me join that call because you're not going to know you should get on that call. Um, so really, coaching is probably getting getting better. Uh, the the challenge I think a lot of organizations are going to run into is, did they really train their sales managers to coach? And I bet there's going to be a pretty big deficiency there. So hopefully, sales enablement and um, 
and sales leadership looks at that <clears throat> at that gap and maybe tries to focus on how do I how do I ensure that my my frontline sales managers my directors are actually really going to get the training and make make coaching a better point of emphasis. Uh, I, I look forward to seeing some really interesting topics uh, for sales and sales management research to to pop up after this is over. Yeah, it's going to be interesting, isn't it? I th I think people are having to make tough decisions, and I uh, one of the one of the greatest quotes um, from from Jamie Diglio out of uh, New York. Um, she's now with a consulting firm, and I and I can't remember the name, um, but she said something on our on our leadership summit to wrap up the day. She said, "Right now, this is really between are you helpful or are you hurtful?" And I think that was probably one of those clear messages. And she, she asked a really poignant question. She said, you need to ask yourself the following question. What does it feel like to work for you right now? And I was like, oh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. And she said, and, and at the end of her conversation, she said, listen, I wasn't trying to get you to worry about everything. You need to understand that being a leader in a crisis, um, you're cementing people's view of a company, of a person for years to come. And I think that's tough. I, I think we're going to do research on whether people did a good job or a bad job, and but I don't know that that's going to be fair. I do think people, I think leaders are getting born. Um, and I think a lot of us may be getting a clear vision of who we are and who we maybe need to become. Um, and that we need to maybe look at things differently. I think that'll be tough to tease out from a research perspective. I think we'll probably, you know, identify that a lot of people, you know, just didn't handle the crisis. Well, you know, the poor, the poor Navy people, you know, the, the, the aircraft carrier, you know, the under, the, the Navy director of the Navy has already stepped down and, you know, the guy got relieved of his command. So, you know, here's two people that both of them just didn't handle the situation well, but you know, isn't that unfair? We all got to see that they didn't handle it well. Yeah. God, I hope people aren't watching when I don't handle things well, cause it's happening pretty consistently and yep. it, it's, it's unfair. I think we're, we're in a situation where people are trying to do their best and, and sometimes, you know, we're, we're human. We're all human. And we're dealing with it. I, I love the, there was a great meme that went out. And, it's, and it said with an explanation point, we are not working from home. Explanation point. We are surviving an, a, a, a global pandemic and trying to get something done for work. And I thought, wow, that's some Good perspective point. there. We, because we're trying to all act like, hey, it's no big deal. We're going to be productive and we're going to, you know, we're going to be amazing. And we're going to all of a sudden just develop attributes we never had. And, and we're going to all just be perfect in this environment. And, and, you know, I think we all just need to go, wow, hey, it's great that people are trying to do stuff. 
And and let's not point fingers when people make mistakes because, you know, unfortunately mistakes get amplified right now. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's not true. really, it's not really fair. Um, but I do think we have some serious times coming um, from a sales perspective. I, I do think we, we were in a mania. We were over-investing. We were over-supplying. We were over-messaging. Over um, we were just doing more and more and more and more. And we knew it wasn't working, but people gave us the money, so we did it anyway. Well, now we have to get smarter. And, and um, I'm actually looking forward to where we go next because I think it's going to be a better place. And I think we're going to get some really great people to get into sales who probably said, I don't want to go into sales because I just don't like the way people do it. And I think we're going to get some really smart and intelligent and amazing people who say, I'm willing to go solve the problems of the world, but I wasn't willing to harass people with stupid messaging. Yes, that's a good point. So, great, great observation. Well, Howard, I really appreciate you sharing uh, these insights with us today. Um, this, is, this is all really good stuff to, to contemplate. Um, I, I do think we're in, in for some, some changes, and it's going to be some disruptions, and it's going to take us a while to work through this. But, uh, you know, usually, you know, things even turn out better. And I think in sales, I think you're correct. I think, I think it's going to change our modeling, and I think we're going to put out even a better product than we did before. When to talk about students. Yeah, I think, I think if you pivot um, appropriately, um, and, and I think, you know, I, listen, so I, I, this is something we're working on internally at UT Dallas. And I, once again, I'm, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a great marketing campaign guy, but I, I think there's a message I feel that's important couple of things I think are important for the future. Number one, I, I am convinced that this economy, when we turn it back on, is going to sputter and is not going to just stand up on its own. And so we are going to need great salespeople to restart the economy. It's going to take a salesperson going to a buyer and saying, or, or an executive of a company and saying, I know you don't want to spend. I know you don't, you don't think you should spend. But if we all act like that, this economy doesn't get started. So I'm, I, we're going to have to call upon people and it's going to be salespeople are going to run that charge. Salespeople are going to reawaken this economy and restart it because we, the, the economic impact isn't as, it, it, the challenge, the underlying factor that has impacted this economy is fear. It's fear of the unknown. It's fear of being sick. It's fear of not being able to continue. That's a behavioral issue. People are psychologically altered. Organizations are psychologically altered. So when you go in and you show somebody a value proposition like you did before, they're not going to buy because they're psychologically modified. 
So we're going to have to say to you, listen, I understand where you're at. But at some point, we got to be strategic. People have to restart. And let's restart. And I think it's salespeople who are going to grow the economy. And then the second piece of that is, I think if you're a recruiter or you're a sales organization, you got a decision to make. There's some great research that was put out by Florida State this year with Willie Bolander and some other people that showed that when you, you know, you've got to figure out, are you going to go after an experienced hire? Or are you going to go after a collegiately sales trained hire? And you know what? Their research said, if you go after the experienced hire in the first year, that's a smart move. Starting a year after, if you, if you hire a college student trained in sales versus an experienced hire for the first year, the experienced hire does better. But about 12 to 15 months out, the collegiate hire starts doing better. Three years out, the collegiate hire does three times better than the experienced hire. They, they learn at a faster pace. They perform, they accelerate their productivity at a faster pace. What a great research article to have out right before this happened. So when you're staffing up again, you're going to have a decision between experienced, collegiate hire. If you're going to go collegiate, you're going to have a, a decision between sales trained from a U, University Sales Center Alliance school or career fairs. I, mm -hmm. think, I think USCA schools are really going to matter in the new economy. You've got, you've got these universities that have worked together, 60 of us, that get around each other and say, how do we really get good at training people to be the leaders of sales in the future? And I think you can't afford to be hiring at a college job fair when you have USCA's trained students from 60 universities who actually want to be in sales and are trained in sales and are going to have a faster ramp up. And according to the research by Florida State, they're going to outperform the experienced people. You just got to let them on board. And we have data from UTD that it, it doesn't even take the year, but Florida State did it across lots of universities with a, with a controlled study. Um, so I think this is an exciting time. I think we're in the right place. I think students who are looking for where do I go to get a job in the future, I think you need to attend a USCA school. I think you need to get a USCA education. I think you need to be in a USCA sales program. It's going to be the entry point to almost many of the companies in the future because they're still going to hire salespeople, but they may cut back on a lot of other positions. And so, I, Greg, I think you're in a great place. I think we're, I'm in a great place. And you and I both know that we as directors of sales centers are going to get together and we're going to help each other adjust for the new reality. And those students are going to be prepared for what's coming. And so I, I'm pretty optimistic for our students, for our programs. Um, but I think we've got some things to learn over the next 18 months to two years. Yep. Good point. Well, Howard, that's a perfect way to end this podcast. <laughs> so thank you. I think, I think you put a perfect bookend. Uh, you basically summarized everything we've covered. And you had a good message in there for our students also from UT Dallas and LSU. So I, I really appreciate those comments. You bet, Greg. Great. Well, listen, thank you for your time, and uh, we'll be seeing you soon. Okay. Thank you again for joining us today in our podcast. 
If you or your company would like to find out about how you can be more involved in the LSU Professional Sales Institute or information on how to recruit our great sales students, you can reach us at business.lsu.edu forward slash PSI. Thank you again and go Tigers.